Good morning. How are y'all doing? All right. Some of y'all are good. It sounds like some of y'all are not that good. I hope that uh, you're excited about this morning as I am. Uh, we're going to jump back into a series that we, were, uh, that we began on Easter. Last week, we took a little break so that we could hear from Balai Gebru from Ethiopia. And I hope you enjoyed hearing about that and the impact that we're making in Ethiopia. Um, we started on Easter, though, a series called Divine Clues, and this was kind of a personal series that I wanted to do. I really wasn't concerned whether or not you wanted it. I wanted it, okay? Um, and this series is basically why I believe in God, and it's kind of my journey of the things that really convinced me when I went through a crisis of belief of what I believe about who God is. And so the first uh, three weeks of this series, I talked about why I think there is a God, why I think that just any God exists. And the first week I talked about, the, when I look at creation, it just shouts to me that something created, whether it's the fact that plants are giving off carbon dioxide and we're giving off oxygen and we're breathing in oxygen, we're giving off carbon dioxide and they're taking it in. And there's just a symbiotic relationship. There are just so many things when we look at the fine tuning of the universe we talked about. There's so many things when I look at creation that just says, as Francis Collins, who uh, is a biologist, says, it seems as if the universe knew where we're coming. And that's just the way, the older I get, I begin to look around and say, there's just too many things in creation that seem to shout a creator. The next week I talked about some things that are more important to me, you may not have even thought about, but there are certain things in life that you wouldn't necessarily expect if there was no God, that you can't just explain from an evolutionary uh, outlook. There are things that are a little more abstract, Things like love. You can, you can say love is a chemical reaction between, uh, in our brains that causes us. There's a reason for it. But I pointed out that in my experience, no one actually lives like that. That all of us believe love is more than just a chemical reaction. Nobody has ever lost someone that they love and said, well, it's just a chemical reaction. It's okay. It wasn't real. No one has ever just let a relationship die. We look at things like beauty. We, what do you expect this much beauty in life to exist and for us to be drawn to beauty? And you can try to give an explanation, but one of the explanations that God is revealing himself when I look at a sunset or a sunrise and I see millions of colors, I see a gradient, it's just hard to ignore, in my opinion. Another clue that as I was thinking about those abstract things, purpose. I've never met one person I've met people that have said life has no purpose if, that, because there is no God, but I've never met one per person who lived their life as if there was no purpose, who got up every morning and, and went to work and struggled and did all these things as if there was no meaning in it. And the only way we have meaning in life, we, we even use these terms, we discover it. We don't create meaning. I got to discover my purpose. You look at these things in life and there are, as Paul says, there are divine attributes that are revealed about God. The third week we talked about morality and I think this is one of the most concrete proofs that God, a, a God has to exist. Every one of us lives as if, as if there is an absolute right and wrong. We might disagree on what that right and wrong is, but every one of us 
believes that there are certain things that no matter where you go are right and wrong. And the only way that can exist is if there is someone who created those laws outside of ourselves. They are not relative to us. Now, all those things could tell you that a God exists. And the older I get, I'm more convinced now than ever that you have to somewhat close your eyes to a lot of things to say there's no chance that God creates. I, I have complete faith that a God exists. But to actually get to the step of faith that Jesus Christ is God is a totally different matter. To actually become a Christian and say that God not only exists, but that he has entered into his own creation, that he has this plan that, has, that is made just for you so that you can forever be in his presence. And it, 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 this plan involves Jesus living a life that God lives an entire life perfect so that we can see it. He dies and he is raised from the dead. This is an entirely different statement than simply God exists. And so for the last two weeks of this series, I want to tell you why I am a Christian, not simply a believer in God. I've had this conversation several times about why I follow Jesus. And in Early on when I would have this conversation, when I was in college, I had this conversation with someone who didn't believe in God at all. And this is what they said. You might have even heard somebody say something like this to you. They said, you realize the only reason that you believe in God is because you were born in Texas. You were born in the middle of the the buckle of the Bible belt. And if you would have been born in Morocco, you'd be a Muslim. If you were born in India, you'd be a Hindu. And for a few years, this kind of troubled me because they're, they're kind of right. There's a lot of other places that I probably would have been ingrained other beliefs. But as I I researched this and thought it through, I began to realize, wait a second, that really doesn't speak to the truth of whether or not Jesus is truly the son of God. In fact, I could ask that exact same person, you know, in the, the George Costanza way, if I could go back and have that conversation, I would win the argument. Um, No one, no one watches Seinfeld. Golly, it just crushes me. Um, If I could go back, I would simply point out that, listen, if you're going to make the claim that the only reason I believe this, I could say the same thing back to that person. The only reason that they believe that there was no God or that that everything is relative is because they were born where they were born. If they were born in Morocco, they would be a Muslim. If they were born in India, they would be a Hindu. And in fact, they would say that, 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 their truth is that their, what their statement is accurate, even if that's true. So why couldn't mine be? That's not a proof. But I will concede, I was handed a faith in Jesus Christ growing up. Because of where I was born, uh, my parents, I would say, they rented their faith to me growing up. I grew up And I'm very thankful for the way I was raised. I was raised with a belief that God loved me from the day I was born. I was raised with a belief that even on my worst day, God would forgive me from the day I I don't remember ever not believing. But this was my parents' faith that was handed to me. And when I got into college, I actually had to go through a process of, of buying my own faith, so to speak. I couldn't just go on living on the parent's dime anymore. And I had to go through a process of saying, you know what? If I'm going to follow this for the rest of my life, it needs to be my faith. And I went through a crisis of belief. I went through a process of examining everything I believe. Is this really the direction I want my life to go? Is this really true? 
And I went through this process to where I, I let go of my parents' faith and I began to build my own faith. And a lot of what I want to talk to you today comes out of that experience of becoming a Christ follower, not because it was what I was taught or raised on, but because I've truly examined and came to a conclusion, this is the most important thing I could do. I believe most of us have a good reason for whatever you believe. If I were to look at all the experiences, where you've been raised, all these things, you would have a good reason for what you believe. But I also think we have a lot of misinformation about Christianity and about what, what really the, war, the, the historical evidence we have for Jesus says. A few months ago, I was having a small, we were at a small group, which meets at my house, and, and a very interesting thing happened. Somebody came into our, uh, uh, one of our group members came in and said, hey, by the way, your neighbor's yelling at your child. And I was like, that's odd. So I walked out there, and there's my neighbor just yelling at one of my kids. You're going to probably figure out which one, so I'm, there's not much I can do about that. Don't go up to him afterwards. But... Uh, they told me that, hey, your son, I went up and said, what's going on? Hey, your son, my son had run off by this time. Your son knocked on my door and ran away and I saw him do it. In fact, I saw him hiding over there and that's where it happened. So I go up to my son, or I, saw him, I'm, I began thinking, okay, I'm going to go talk to my son. I'm going I'm to correct this. But then my neighbor starts making some other claims about my son and really starts saying some stuff that I'm like, huh, that's interesting, that's interesting, and begins to make these outlandish claims uh, about my son. In fact, goes as far as to say, by the way, do you know what your son was doing last summer? And I was like, this is very interesting, I have no idea. Your son would get up every night during the summer and would come out, and at two o'clock in the morning, your son will knock on all our windows. And I just begin to think, it's a bold claim. That's kind of odd. We have an alarm system. We have, he has a room with his younger brother who, by the way, not always a fan and probably would have told me that once. He, in order to get to at least disarm the alarm panel, which makes a loud beep every time you touch a button, he would have to go past his older brother, who I can guarantee you is not going to let this slide. And I just began to hear all of this stuff, and I have this thought. If, if one of these claims is true, then my son is not who I thought my son is. Understand, I spend every day in the car with my son just about driving to activities, and, and I know my son pretty well, at least I thought. And I begin to have all of these fears of, if one of these is true, I don't even know who he is. And so I go out and talk to him, and I say, First thing I said is, why did you knock on their door and run away? And he said, well, uh, at first I was trying to see if they were there, but then I saw that woman who hates me is there. And he said, I ran away and I hid. And uh, yeah, we were laughing about it because there were three or four of us and it wasn't just him alone. And I was like, well, well, you can't, why would you do that? I would yell at you too. And then I said, and what about last summer? And I began to investigate and he looked at me with the, the most puzzled eyes of, what are you talking about? And I began to just kind of hint around without giving away all that, uh, the evidence. I, and he began to, to say, I, I began, tell me about the time you snuck out. And he's like, looking at me like, what are you talking about? And I went to his brothers to try to investigate. And 
whenever both his brothers stick up for him, that's like what we call concrete evidence because that's never happened in the history of ever, okay? And I just began to really, but for a second I had this thought, man, if just one of these outlandish things is true, then I got to reorient everything I know about my son. Thankfully, it was not true. And I began to think about a conversation I once had that applies to all of us. I was once listening to a historian talk, and he, he said, you know, it's fun sometimes to think about some of the outlandish claims, some of the conspiracy or the, the just the outlandish claims that people have made in history. And he references the uh, TV show Ancient Aliens. Anyone seen the show? All right, don't admit that, guys. Don't admit that. No, I'm just kidding. And he said, can you imagine if, it, if we were to find historical proofs that aliens came down and built the pyramids, and we found proof of that, that changes everything about all of us in here, right? All of a sudden, everything we think about every day, is there aliens coming and building stuff and just interact? That's just a crazy, that changes everything. Well, I want to tell you, if just one thing in the Bible is true, that is crazy to most people. If it is true that a man predicted his death and three days later walked out of the grave, if that is historically true, that changes everything. No matter if you call yourself a Christian or not, that changes everything. Today I want to give you, if you're a Christian what I think is something you should know. You should memorize this. You should be able to, to say these three facts I'm going to give you. If you're not a believer, if you've ever had doubt like I have in whether or not this is historically true, that Jesus Christ died and rose again, then I want to really press you into examining these three facts I'm going to give you today. This is called the minimal effects approach, by the way. This is, there are dozens and dozens of historically accurate um, facts about Jesus Christ. And when I say historically um, accurate, I mean if you were to go ask a scholar, a historian, whether or not they believe in Jesus or not, even the skeptical ones, even the ones that deny Jesus was divine, they will tell you that there are certain historical facts that are undeniable, that there is a consensus in the scholastic uh, world. And I want to give you three of them today that if just these three are true, should make us all reconsider everything about our life. Okay? The first fact is on the screen. Jesus died of crucifixion. Virtually every scholar, and I'm not talking YouTube videos, by the way, I'm not talking some documentary made by a few guys or a book that was made to sell, uh, you know, a fictional book made to sell copies. I'm talking about what is taught by historians who have researched and cite their work. It is almost universally concluded that Jesus Christ died on a cross. Now, just to point out, if he died on a cross, that means he lived, okay? 
Because one of the first things that I, that I hear is that Jesus was just a myth. In fact, I've heard, you may have even heard this when I was trying to say, figure out what I believed about Jesus. One of the first things I read were some books that said he never even existed. And I began to realize none of these were written by actual scholars that would say he just, he, he was a myth. Because we have enough historical evidence that even if you remove the Bible, we know Jesus Christ lived in the first century. We know he died on a cross. And I want to show you some, just a few ways of the dozens and dozens that we know this historically. And when I talk about the Bible in this sermon, I'm not going to even talk about it as divine, even though I believe it is. Inspired, even though I believe it is. I'm just saying from a, a historical book that we know was written in the first century, if you were to just look with the claims that are being made in the book when I talk about the Bible, you'll be able to at least see what was being said, what people believed at that time. And you can, use, you can look at the Bible as a historical collection of, of, of books and letters that give you a picture of what was going on. First thing, you may have never thought about this, um, but the way the Bible is written, it's a collection of 66 different books. The New Testament is uh, a collection of different types of literature. Some of them are just letters that were collected, but they were letters written to churches by a man named Paul. And some of them are letters that, was, that were written to tell the story of Jesus, written to friends. Luke, by the way, starts off, Luke tells why he's writing it. Hey, I, he's writing to his friend Theophilus, and he says, hey, I want you to know the story of Jesus. I want you to hear this. And the whole, whole time you're reading these gospels, it's not Luke trying to convince you. He's trying to convince his friend Theo. Hey, Theo, you need to, you need to read this. You need to hear what I heard about Jesus. The first gospel that was put together was likely the book of Mark. Okay, now Mark was written by a guy named John Mark. And John Mark primarily spoke Greek. In fact, when he and Paul write and talk, he was friends with Paul, he knew Paul, he would write in Greek. But there's something interesting. I'm going to give you a quote. And this quote is in Aramaic. How many of you are fluent in Aramaic in here? Okay. No, not even one joker in here. Good. No one. Okay. It's a, the, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote some Aramaic. And if you know this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you permission to speak out loud. Okay. In church. You're totally okay to shout off the answer. Who here can translate the Aramaic phrase, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus says that, and by the way, I give you partial credit if you just said anything out loud, okay? Um, when he says that, he's, it's, it's, it's spoken in Aramaic, but what's interesting about that is it's a quote. Anybody know what it's quoting? Psalm 22. I heard somebody over there saying Psalm 2. My wife, she's, of course, she gets it, right? Um, Psalm 22, Jesus is quoting from the cross in the Gospel of Mark. But what's interesting is if you read at that time, if you were to go try to find Psalm 22, you would have read it in Hebrew in the Old Testament. It would have been in Hebrew. Or if you read what's called the Septuagint, there was the, the, the Bible that Paul and all of the New Testament guys, they were reading the Old Testament and they were reading a translation into Greek. What's interesting is there was nobody that would have had a text in Aramaic at that time of the 22nd Psalm. There's nobody that would have actually read a book that said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It's a translation from Aramaic. And so when Mark is, is trying to tell you the story of Jesus, 
It's very interesting that he comes to the quotes of Jesus, and instead of just saying them in Greek, he always translates them in Aramaic. Now, you think about why this is. Because Mark learned this story from a man named Peter who knew Jesus when Jesus was alive. Now, Jesus only spoke one language, probably. He was familiar with some others. He probably knew some biblical Hebrew. He probably knew some Greek, but he spoke Aramaic. He, he, that, that would have been what he spoke. And so when Mark goes to tell us what, 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 what Jesus' best friend Peter says about the, the crucifixion, Mark says, this is, this is what he said on the cross, Eloi, Elah, lama sabachthani. In other words, he quotes him in Aramaic. And what's fascinating is you can almost see why he would do this. Because he's telling the story in Greek and Greek and Greek because that's what everyone speaks. That's what he speaks. But when Peter tells him, you know what Jesus said on the cross? Jesus, and he, he, he said, Jesus spoke and he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He's quoting Jesus and he quotes Jesus in his exact tongue. It's very, very interesting that a great writing in Greek, you would have quoted a, a language that you rarely ever used unless you were hearing it from an eyewitness, someone who was there. And instead of giving you the Greek translation, which by the way, they translated, John trans, or Mark translates this. He tells you what it means because his readers would not have known what it means. They spoke Greek, but he, he's not trying to tell you what Jesus said. He's telling, trying to tell you exactly this was the quote. Jesus was on the cross and he was heard saying in Aramaic this phrase, lends a lot of credence to the fact that somebody was there listening to it. Now, if you don't believe that the Bible actually is, at least historically, you can say there's evidence to believe that whoever was telling the story was there and was, spoke Aramaic and was around people that spoke Aramaic because they knew how to speak. They knew what he would have said. They didn't just say, this is what Jesus said on the cross. They actually said the words in Aramaic. But what's interesting is you go through you could remove the entire New Testament and you would still know that Jesus Christ died from crucifixion. In the first century, there are historians that are writing and there are also historical documents being written that mention Christianity. There are two historical documents that you specifically um, should note. One is by a man named Suetonius. The other is by a, name named, a man named Pliny the Younger. He, um, Pliny the Younger writes a letter. He is overseeing kind of a district and he writes a letter to the emperor Trajan. And he says to Trajan, I got a problem. There's a bunch of people that claim to be Christians and they're committing blasphemy. They're not worshiping the Roman gods. And that's punishable, by the way, uh, by death. You can be killed for that. He says all these people are claiming that there's a man named Jesus, that there was a man who died on a cross and that he, he rose again. They're still worshiping him. In fact, they're singing songs to him. They're making kind of a, a big deal about this. And you can read the discourse, the conversation between uh, Pliny and Trajan on what to do about these Christians. And Trajan actually says what you've got to do is we need to come back and we need to make sure that, that they have a chance to recant. And then if they won't recant, you can go ahead and persecute them. You can kill them. Um, Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish uh, historian, he does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He did not believe Jesus was divine. He writes a little later after uh, Pliny, but this is what Josephus said. And by the way, 
Some people will say that Christians came in later and wrote some stuff about in Josephus about Jesus. And that's actually, I believe, true. I believe that some Christians later on came in and corrupted him. But we've actually found something by we, not me. I've never found anything. Some, some scholars have actually found some text of Josephus that were separated and they were, they were different than the ones that were corrupted. And this, what I'm about to read to you, is what almost every, every scholar today would say. This is what Josephus wrote. Josephus said this, There was a wise man named Jesus and his conduct was good. He was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after the crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, they think perhaps he was the Messiah concerning who the prophets uh, have reported. And the tribe of Christians named after him has not disappeared to this day. There's another historian, Tacitus. He writes in the first century. Tacitus is writing not about Christians. He's writing about Rome, just the history of Rome. He mentions Nero, that Nero was about to be blamed for burning Rome. And he says this, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on the hated class um, of their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. If you want to know historically what we can tell about the life of Christ is there is one fact that even non-Christian scholars would say is absolutely true. And that is that Jesus Christ lived, he existed, and he died from crucifixion. That's the first fact every Christian should know. That is a fact of history. The second thing you should know, the claim of the resurrection appears almost immediately after Jesus dies on the cross. I've heard, and as I studied and looked at this, I I would see claims made that Christianity was invented, some say invented by the disciples so that they could maintain power. That's kind of a ridiculous claim because if you know anything about proclaiming Christ in the first century, it's the best way to get lit on fire is to proclaim Christ, but it's not a way to to get power in the first century. But some people have made the claim the disciples thought this up after decades, uh, a few decades, and they began to invent these stories. Some people have even gone as far as to say that uh, Constantine, the emperor of Rome in 325-ish, that he invented Christianity so that, that Christ had resurrected, so that he could unify the Roman uh, army. And that is not, that, that is historically inaccurate. What we know is that virtually every scholar would say the claims of the resurrection appear almost immediately following Jesus' death. Now, I want to just uh, point out a few things um, real quick. And, and one of them is that the expectation of a Messiah in Judaism was not that there would be a resurrection. I want you to kind of clear this from your mind that everybody was expecting a Messiah to raise from the dead. They thought that was as crazy then as we think it is today. The people that didn't believe then are the same as the people that don't believe. It's a, it's a crazy idea. There are no Jewish scholars today that would, that would say, hey, when we look at the Messiah, the Messiah is going to die and rise from the ground. Jewish, uh, the prophecies that we read as Christians, we read that into it. And Jesus proclaimed and he read that into it. 
But the, the Jewish expectation was never that the Messiah was going to rise from the dead. That's new information to them. Now, I want to talk to you a little about why we know this was an immediate claim. It didn't come decades after. It didn't come years after, and certainly not centuries after, okay? Um, last year, I started a series called To the Ends of the Earth. Of course, y'all know what I'm talking about because y'all remember every sermon I ever preach. I know that. We're going to rejoin this series and after this one. In fact, in fact, Phil Collins is going to be preaching the first message. It's going to be called The Four Knows, unless he changes that, and I'm really excited about that message. But we went through the life of Paul, and one of the things we learned about the life of Paul is that when Paul converted... One of the first things he did is he, he tells us he went to Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 1, in fact, Galatians was a letter he wrote to the Galatian church to tell them why they should listen to him. He said, uh, in Galatians chapter 1, he says, uh, After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and I remained with him for 15 days. Now, this word to visit, by the way, is the Greek word historia, and the only reason I point that out is because it doesn't mean to visit. It means to examine. It means to cross-examine. It means to investigate. Peter says, after three years, uh, after I saw Jesus, uh, um, Jesus raised from the dead, I went and wanted to talk with Peter, Cephas. Peter was a man who knew Jesus before he, he died and after he died. I wanted to investigate and see what he had to say. What's fascinating is we actually know what Peter told Paul. We know what James, the brother of Jesus, what the people who claimed to see Jesus after he died, we know what they said, what, what they said about Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, even if you just look at this as a letter that Paul writes, Paul tells us what they told him. I'm going to read the first two, and then we'll read together on the screens. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. By the way, every single Christian needs to understand the historical importance of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, that the gospel I preached, the good news I preached to you, I received, which you received, um, he says, and stand in, and you are being saved. If you hold fast to the words I preach, uh, or if you don't, you believe in vain. All that to say, he says, I delivered to you as first importance what I received. He says, so he's about to give you a quote, and he's saying, I didn't make this up. This is what I received from Peter from James, from the people who were there and saw it. I'm going to tell you what they told me. And now he's going to use a quote. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Jesus, then also to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now what's fascinating about 1 Corinthians 15, three through eight, is that even non-Christian scholars will say, Paul did not write this. In other words, he did not invent this. That if you look at the words used in those verses, you don't find them anywhere else. They are not what we call non-Pauline words. He is quoting another source. Michael Martin, who wrote a book called The Case Against Christianity, not a believer, says this. He says, it is likely that these were passed on to him from a much earlier source. 
Skeptic Gerd Ludemann, who is one of the most famous uh, scholars of the historical Christ, does not believe uh, that Jesus was divine, asserts that the element of this tradition are to be dated within the first two years of the crucifixion of Jesus, no later than three years. Philosopher Thomas Sheehan thinks that this formula is pre-Pauline. It goes back to at least 32 to 34 common era, that is within two to four years maximum that this is being quoted. And I understand what this is, is this was either a hymn or a creed that was read in the early church. Now, most would say that within two years, the Christians are already singing songs proclaiming Jesus rose from the dead. So anyone who tells you that they invented it years and years after or a hundred years after, they're missing a fact that even scholars who don't believe that Jesus was divine will say they were singing about it. I don't know how long it takes to write a song. I'm guessing it takes a little bit of time. And they, they're, they're singing about it within two years. The tradition doesn't develop over time. It's immediately proclaimed. Historically, two years is very, very quick. And we know if it's written by that time, it's certainly been developed even earlier. Within two years, we know. Most scholars think that Peter and James gave this to Paul when he came to Jerusalem, just like he said. And so there are two facts that even non-Christians would agree with. Jesus Christ died on a cross and very early Within a year or two, the entire church was proclaiming his resurrection. It was almost immediate. The last fact that I want to show you is that there were eyewitnesses who died claiming they had seen the risen Christ. There were eyewitnesses who made the claim they saw the risen Christ. And this one to me is probably the most important. And by the way, there are, I've only chosen three. There are actually dozens and dozens of, of these facts. But you only need three, I think. This third one is probably the most powerful to me because if you just look at the 11 disciples, okay, the 11 people who, uh, there were 12, I know, one of them cut out early, but the 11 disciples who stayed with him to the very end, what's interesting about them, they knew Jesus before he died, but yet very early afterwards, they began claiming that he rose from the dead and all of them go to their grave claiming that he died. And what's interesting about the way they died is all of them are martyred. They are killed, tortured, making this claim. Now, you may say that's no big deal. We know people that would die for their faith. That's not anything unusual. You know, in September 11th, there were a whole handful of men who drove a, a plane, flew a plane right into a building, and they believed that when they died, they were going to get 72 virgins or whatever, that people do this all the time. But it's different because the disciples were in a unique position. They knew whether it was true or not. Everyone else who gives their life is doing it on faith. We're, giving a, we're martyring ourselves on faith that we believe this is going to happen, but we don't know if it's true or not. Think about those 11 disciples. We know that some of them were crucified. Some of them were burned alive. Some of them were boiled in oil. Some of them were flayed. That is, they were skinned alive. Peter, I want you to think about this, is given the opportunity to recant. And they take his wife, and they're going to crucify his wife before they crucify him. He watches his wife get crucified and will not recant 
Uh, he, he goes himself and he tells them, crucify me upside down. I'm not worried that he'd be crucified as Christ was crucified. What would it take for you to be tortured for a lie that you knew was not true? What would it take for you to watch the people you love be tortured for something you knew was not true? And the only thing you had to do to escape that torture was to confess the truth. But we know at least 11 men went to their graves and watched their family go to their grave, knowing that they would, they would not recant. Another thing is interesting. Jesus' enemies converted after, after he died. One of Jesus's, the groups that Jesus hated the most, or I wouldn't say hated, he spoke against the most, was the Pharisees. These were the religious Jews of the time that were in power. And in Acts uh, 6, and, and we know one of the first things that happened is there are these priests and Pharisees that convert. Acts 6, 7 says this, the word of God continued to increase and multiply in number. The disciples multiplied in Jerusalem and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Now, you may say, yeah, but that's the Bible. The Bible probably is full of errors. Maybe if you doubt it. But I want to point out one of the things that almost every scholar of the Bible will say is that the very first theological debate in the Bible was between the Pharisees, the Jews that believed in Jesus, and the priests and the, the new converts about whether or not new believers had to be circumcised. The only reason this comes out is because there are now so many Pharisees and priests who were Jewish and they followed the entire Jewish law that now believe and they're in the church that they're now making the claim everybody needs to become Jewish even when you follow Jesus. Acts 15, it says this, so the Pharisees, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law. What this tells us is that historically we know at least one thing, the enemies of Jesus did not agree with him while he was alive. But something happened after that all of their enemies decided, or not all, but many of, their, of the enemies of Christ, the Pharisees and the priests, who, by the way, signed his death warrant, took him to the cross, took him before Pontius Pilate. They are the same ones that turn around and say, hey, we got to get our theology straight if we're going to follow Jesus. And they begin to follow Jesus. And the last one uh, I witnessed that I think we all need to know about is Jesus's brother, James. Uh, again, two of the most famous non-Christian scholars, Gerd Ludemann and Helmut Kessler, uh, widely regarded as among the most uh, um, trusted scholars on the historical Christ, say that Jesus's brother James did not believe in Jesus while he did not believe Jesus was divine while he was alive, but yet went to his grave believing Jesus was the, um, was God. Um, Mark chapter three. We know that uh, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, says it's this about Jesus or about James. It said they went home and the crowds gathered around. And when his family heard. They went out to seize him. They went out to, to take Jesus away because there were so many people following Jesus. And they, um, they, his family said about Jesus, he is out of his mind. His brothers thought he was out of his mind. You can read in John where Jesus says, hey, I'm not going to go to the feast. And the, the brothers of Jesus say, well, why not, big shot? Why don't you go to the feast and tell him, hey, I'm Jesus, the, the Messiah. And they, they mock him. 
While he was alive, his brothers did not believe. But almost every historian would say, we know as a historical fact that James, the brother of Jesus, was the leader of the Jerusalem church. He was the one who went to his grave. Josephus said he was stoned and would not recant that he saw his brother alive after he was crucified. The simple question, what would it take for you to be convinced that your brother was the son of God? For James, it took a resurrection. And I would tell you, I've got a brother and he's a pretty nice guy. He's not here today, so I'll talk about him. And my brother, if I were to tell, you, tell my brother, hey, I want to convince you that I'm Jesus, that I'm the Messiah, my brother would call me crazy. He, there's no way he would go along with that. In fact, I can tell you the only thing I can think of that would convince him is the same thing it took for James to be convinced. What's fascinating about the eyewitnesses is they're all in position to know whether it's true or not. And not one of them recants. And they're willing to go to their grave. There's a lot of other facts that I could look at. There's the empty tomb, which most scholars agree with. There's so many other details. But just looking at these three facts, we know Jesus Christ lived and he died on a cross. We know that very early, almost immediately, people began to proclaim he rose from the dead. And we know that the people knew him beforehand, decided to change their minds, and for three days they did not believe, but something happens, and all of a sudden, every one of them is willing to die without recanting that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I'll be honest, in my journey, I kind of came very quickly to the idea, I can believe that God exists. But if God simply exists, then that doesn't really help a lot of us in here. On my way here, in fact, uh, I stopped and I got uh, a bagel. I never really do that. I went and got a bagel today. I haven't gone to get a bagel in three years. The last time, though, I would go, I used to go before church and I would get a bagel, work on and tighten up my message. And I met... Uh, a pastor I hadn't seen in three years this morning. And I was talking to him, and he was alone. And I said to him, where's your wife? Uh, How are you doing? And he looked at me very sad, and he said, I'm not doing well. My wife died less than a month ago. He said, in fact, two months ago, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. They said she'd have another year. She had less than a month or month and a half. And he said, this is the first day I'm actually going to preach since she passed away. And he, he preaches in Greenville. And so I was talking, well, what are you going to preach on? And he just kind of laughed. And he said, I'm going to preach on the resurrection of Jesus. And you know, of everything we know about our faith, there's only one fact that really has to be true for you to be a Christian. And it's a fact that if it happened, if it historically happened, it means everything. It means everyone who's ever even had a shred of hope of seeing a loved one in the afterlife or or getting there themselves has a chance. This is what Paul says. Right after he says 1 Corinthians 15 and he tells you what the early church told him, listen to what he says. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. For even we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by man Christ or came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. If in Christ or if in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul was very clear. We're Christians because a historical fact occurred. A man walked out of the grave and he did so because he said, if I overcome death for myself, I'm doing it for you as well. Every single person in here can have a hope that is eternal because if God raised him from the dead, he can raise you from the dead. If you want to know why I believe, there's actually a lot of reasons, but it started with me simply looking at a few facts that everyone agrees. Jesus Christ lived and died for you. <laughs> From the very beginning, the early church sang praises that Jesus was raised from the dead. And even the people who didn't believe when he was alive had their lives totally and radically transformed after meeting him when he was risen. As I close today, there's just one thing I want to do. I want you to understand that wherever you are in life right now, wherever you are, whether you doubt, whether you're going through circumstances that you think are insurmountable, I want to remind us that we have the power of a resurrection behind us. That there is never a point in our life in which we are hopeless. And it's not because the, the magical Bible says it. It's not because, you know, some, some, some long theory and long uh, conspiracy made it out. It's because not only does creation shout, history shouts, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, I pray for our church I pray that everyone here today, maybe that has just kind of looked at their faith as something that was handed to them. Maybe in times when we're really struggling, we begin to lose faith. Is this real? Is there really any hope for my situation? Is there any hope that, that in the next few days that I'll see you move in my life? Lord, I pray we walk out of here excited, anticipating you to, to raise every circumstance in our life that we've given up on. Because we know for a fact that you have moved in this world, that you have lived in this world, that you have not only shared with us every single uh, injustice, that you have shared um, in, in all of our pain, that you've been tempted like we have. You've gone through what we've been through. 
but you've also showed us that you can overcome. Lord, I pray that you invigorate our faith, that we proclaim as they did early in the, in the church, that even if it cost us everything, we know you are alive. Lord, I pray we walk out of here emboldened to tell people Jesus Christ rose from the grave. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.